Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host. and I am once again honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show takes you into the field where you have those mastermind meetings and aha moments that move you closer to serving from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. We record from the field. Sometimes you may hear some ambient noises in the background, some birds chirping, a car driving by, laughter from the next table. Right now, it's possible you may hear a slight wind blowing as I sit on my balcony here in Las Vegas, known to some as the hottest city in America. It's also possible because it's turning into quite a chilly evening. You may at some point hear a door open and the ambiance changing as I move inside to my sumptuous living room, which is halfway packed up as I'm in the middle of a move. But we'll see how this goes. Right now, what I want to speak with you about, and this is another one of our great interviews we've been having lately about finance topics is, and I hate to say this, but this is something that's out there, is why your financial advisor may be harming your finances. Now, let me qualify that by saying, first of all, is we've had a number of financial advisors on the show. They're all fantastic guests. I've had clients who are in the financial services industry working as advisors. In fact, one of them is a consistent leader for the entire world in his particular brokerage. I'm not going to say which one it is, but he was a client of mine for 10 years and he's still going strong and uh, he's created a number of millionaires, which I think is fantastic. But at the same time, you got to be cautious for a number of reasons. So what we like to do at Business Creators Radio is we will sometimes take a contrarian view. We'll take an opposing view. And we just want you to have the entire picture so that you can make the decision that is smartest and most in alignment with your truth. Now, We have somebody with us today who's going to give us a new view on this. His name is Norman Papoose. He's a retired financial markets professional, and he was motivated to enter the wealth management industry by a personal tragedy. Uh, He began his professional career in London, working for global investment banks and hedge funds before he came home to help the average investor navigate the financial markets. Now, Shocked by the misdirection of Wall Street marketing, Norman launched FinancialAdvisorCheck.com, which is a company that serves the clients of financial advisors for by producing for free institutional-level confidential portfolio performance reports without the knowledge of their investment advisors. If his name sounds familiar, and it actually did sound familiar to me when he was when he was first introduced to me by his agency, I checked him out and I realized where I'd seen him before in the New York Post. I've seen him in the New York Post. You also might find him in Forbes, Investment News, Registered Rep, TheStreet.com, and Frontline on PBS. Norman Papoose, come on in. The weather's fine. How are you doing, Adam? Thanks for having me. And I legit did see you on the New York Post. Uh, When you were first introduced to me by your agent, I did. your name really did sound familiar, so I did a quick um, search of the interwebs, and I saw 
your stuff on the post come up and yeah, it looked very familiar. I have read your stuff before. It's fantastic. And I'm so happy to have you with me today. So I read off your official bio. It's so impressive. I'm not sure I'm worthy to be in your presence. And this is my show. Uh, (laughs) So what we want to do first is before we get into, and you gave us a few key points you wanted to cover. And then I have a few questions of my own Mm -hmm. is we, we like to pull the curtain back and look inside. Tell us a bit, Norman, about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion in your own words. Sure. Thank you. Well, um, but, but before I tell you what got me in, I, I, I just want to go over my, you know, kind of credentials. And, you know, I have a, I started in the futures industry in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I have a degree in economics, have a de- graduate degree in financial markets. I've worked for mutual funds, trading desk, hedge funds, um, you know, pretty much the whole gamut. I was kind of one of those quant people. Uh, won a national award for my structured products work. But all of that was uh, due to the fact of what happened to my uh, my family back in the late 70s and early 80s. And much like a doctor might be uh, motivated to, you know, heal the sick because a parent or a sibling, uh, you know, got ill, um, I was motivated by the actions of a unethical uh, advisor who got my dad, who was a who was a physician, a smart guy, um, but he got my dad to you know trust him with his retirement account, and uh, we almost went bankrupt, and that put a lot of pressure on my dad. And you know the old saying, you know when uh, when poverty comes in the front door, you. Know, all that in my family and it, it was very tough and uh it mm-hmm. was uh it, it was caused a lot of trauma and i escaped it as i was old and kind of go to college get away my brother was there and uh one day i came home uh it was april 1986 yeah taking his life and i believe that absent the broker virtually wiping out my family, uh, my brother would be alive today. So that was how I got into the industry. Yeah, that's, you know, and that's pretty intense. And, you know, that's what some people worry about. I play in the market to a degree, but I have not been inspired to go all that deep into it. I've had people uh, tell me my whole life, I yeah, and and some of it, the messaging is just completely off. And this is one of the themes that we're going to get into with some of my questions about this and how it relates to how we're progressing as a society and how some of the uh, framework of our society is evolving. Uh, when I was college age, I had a part-time job working in fast food, and I also had an interest in competition auto sound, you know, putting a bitching system in your car. Yes. I, uh, yes, I had a 19, <laughs> I had a 1988 Camaro and the system I put in that bad boy was worth twice as much as the car. I, I, uh, I made, I made some friends on the competition auto sound circuit and those guys were crazy. I mean, they would buy this state of the art stuff. And then two months later, something else would come out and they would dump, uh, uh, like subwoofers were $400 a piece in 1990s terms that dump them on the market for 50 bucks because they wanted to get the next new thing. And uh, I was there to scoop all that stuff up. Oh, let me, let me tell you uh, the problem. The, the thing with that Camaro is sometimes I pull into my driveway and I would uh, have to drive that thing some more, sometimes burning out an entire tank of gas. 
Mm-hmm. So I had an interest in the financial side of that. And, uh, and in the mid to late 90s, some of the earliest websites in the area of e-commerce were around that industry, buying and selling that stuff. I looked into the possibility of becoming a reseller for some of the brands that sold that equipment and also some that sold uh, modifications for cars. For example, with the third generation Camaro, the one that was from 1982 to 1992, the soundstage on that thing was absolutely freaking awful. Uh, The front speakers were in that very high sloping dashboard the car had and they were yep. off in the corners which means you basically had no sound stage at all i bought the custom kick panels from i think it was q forms uh that create that center stage like most vehicles have today that company's still in business by the way and they're still selling those but companies like that also had reseller programs and i was looking to get involved in that and uh, at the time, I just didn't quite have the means, and I also didn't quite have the entrepreneurial discipline to do what it would take to be successful now. And I acknowledge that. But some of the advice I was given of is like, why are you why are you buying stereo equipment for your car? Why are you looking to become a reseller? You should be buying an IRA. What the fuck does a nineteen year old know about an IRA? Mm-hmm. And, and 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 what and what, what what do they care anyway? I mean, aside from aside from pimping out my Camaro, I was raising money for Thursday night at the bars at Penn State. Right. Yeah. So uh, so part of what I just said speaks to financial literacy and how, for at least in my lifetime, and I was born in 1976, financial literacy has not really been a priority of our educational system, and I think that actually kind of underpins some of the problems that we have with the whole financial advisory industry, which, as I said, there are a lot of great financial advisors out there who truly care about their clients and have a vested interest in helping their clients build wealth for their generations. I am with that 100% of the way. And then we also hear stories like yours, where your family got taken by a ride and ended up with you losing your dear brother due to uh, suicide. So um, it's kind of a kind of a very, very sad plank that we walk on sometimes. And I guess this comes back to how you invest your money being one of the biggest decisions you can make and how we're not prepared for it. So the decision you make when you choose a financial advisor obviously shouldn't be taken lightly. So how do you, how do you figure out whether your financial advisor is worth their fees? Well, that's the, that's the great thing about uh, Wall Street. They've made it so that you can't. I mean, truthfully, you can't. And okay. the, the best way to to confirm this is call up a bunch of financial advisors and ask them what their performance record is. And mm-hmm. ninety over ninety nine percent won't have one because the. SEC and FINRA and the regulatory agencies have made it so difficult for financial advisors to um, to be able to advertise or tell the public what their actual investment performance record is. Could they? Yes. It's easy math. Absolutely, you right. can. You're familiar with Morningstar, right? Uh, yeah, I, I check it out from time to time. Sure. Okay. Do you know the origins of Morningstar? Please tell us. Morningstar started when a guy named Joe Mansueto was in Chicago working for a bank exactly at the time that you're talking about, because this is when IRAs were starting to really bubble. And a lot of people were walking into the bank, looking at their banker and saying, hey, I'm going to open up one of these IRAs. And back then you would open them up at the bank. You know, it was pretty it was pretty uh, normal. And um, they go, you know, the, the, the banker would go, great, well, 
open up an account for you and they go, okay, what should we invest in? Well, back then there was no central repository of mutual fund performance. There was nowhere to go. So the bank walked into Joe Mansueta's office, who was a lowly, you know, low, low on the totem pole, and they handed him about a, a foot tall stack of, of mutual fund prospectuses. And they said, Joe, tell us which of these mutual funds we should put our, our bank uh, clients into. So Joe spent a couple of weeks going through all this uh, marketing material. And of course, one fund would say, since inception, we have done better than 90% of blah, blah, blah. And the other one would say, over a one, three, and five-year performance, we have done better than our entire industry. And then another one would measure it in different ways. And they each of the prospectuses did exactly what they were designed to do, which was to make the, the, the mutual fund appear to be the best one available but they all had different standards of, of performance metrics. And all of a yeah. sudden the light went off in Joe's head and says, you know, if I could standardize all this, a lot of people would be helped. And that's what he did. So let me ask you, Adam, if Joe Mansueto can go out there and standardize the performances of all of those mutual funds, why can't a financial advisor provide that to a client walking in the front door? It sounds to me like there's some kind of profit motive. It's not as much. You're right. It's I would say money. It's a money motive, okay. not necessarily profit, because the 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 idea when you ask the advisor will look back at you and say, "Well, each of my clients has a different risk reward asset allocation model, and we specifically tailor our." portfolios to their risk tolerance. And you go, well, that seems reasonable as to why you can't provide me with a investment performance record. But it's not because what the client doesn't know, what investors don't know, is that for every financial advisor, I doubt they use more than 10 asset allocation models. And they could easily, using math, give you an example, you know, of a of a, of their basic portfolio, and the way you know that that's possible is that some do it. Some actually okay. go and do, and follow the regulations. They're called global investment performance standards, and in order to public publicly advertise your your performance. You have to follow global investment performance standards and follow, you know, the uh, FINRA rules, which is a self which is a regulatory agency for financial advice. But yep. yes, every single advisor can do it, and they don't because they have found that the business model is better if you can acquire clients based on a relationship build than a performance uh, demonstration, and yeah. that's why they don't do it. And, uh, and this is why you see, at least in my experience, a lot of financial advisors who want to position themselves as basically an extra member of your family. Yes. And, uh, and, the, and the whole conversation about, well, what's actually happening with the money doesn't come up very often. And this uh, leads to a story that to this day I chuckle about. Uh, this, this might have been 10 years ago. I can't remember exactly when it was. But there was this big expose and everybody was laughing and thought it was real funny when they found out that the documentary maker, Michael Moore, had stock in Halliburton. <laughs> I mean, he created documentaries about how Halliburton was literally the source of all evil in the world. And here he is investing in it. And the 
so-called scandal didn't last very long when a lot of people pointed out that uh, he that you know Michael Moore you know did make a lot of money and the man does have a family and an interest in in his own financial security and being able to pass things on to his heirs like any other human being and uh, he probably had an advisor or a team of advisors who did a lot of things without his knowledge. Sure. Absolutely. If I had his money, I probably wouldn't know what I had in my portfolio. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, when, when you go to these financial advisors, let me ask you something, Adam, have you ever walked through an airport and seen the Barron's, uh, Barron's uh, edition that says the top 500 financial advisors in the country ranked? I haven't been in an airport in a long time, but I am familiar with Barron's and I uh, I imagine that there are those types of rankings out there, although right off the top of my head, I don't have it right yes. in front of me. So Barron's does it. Uh, you know, there are a few you have on the internet that are only digital products that do it. If you go and do a, a uh, search and say, you know, financial advisor rankings, you're going to get about three or four major publications that put rankings out every year. And here's the interesting thing about it. Do you know how much uh, investment performance, investing skill plays in the advisor's ranking? Take a while. I don't I don't have any I don't have any scientific basis for a number I'm going to give you. So I'm literally just pulling this out of thin air. I'm going to guess none. You nailed it. Nailed it. Wow. Zero. 0.00. 0.00. The rankings you see on without exception fail to account for investment performance. What are they based on then? They well, okay, so they're they're based on the fluffy stuff. Okay, they're based on client uh, you know, how well a client speaks of their attentiveness. Um, how well they, uh, how many assets they have, um, what they have as far as uh, uh, letters after your name, investment designations, uh, that kind yes, of thing. Yes, that long string of, uh, and I've worked with some financial advisors that have like eight or nine of them, but yeah, go yes. ahead. And and there is something else that they they stopped, <laughs> they stopped showing. But if you if you have the screenshots, you can go back and check out what I'm going to tell you. In a strange quirk, the ones that rank higher have more assets under management than the ones that rank lower. You know why that is? Oh, please tell me. Well, they don't charge to be for you to be ranked in the in their publication. So Barron's doesn't charge anybody to, you know, be ranked one, two, three, four. They do pay a fee, you know, just like an application fee, but you know, that's standard stuff. I'm, you know, that's okay. But if you were the marketing director of Barron's and you were going to be ranking these financial advisor firms, well, which one do you think would have a bigger marketing budget to license the information from Barron's that showed your ranking? A firm with fifty billion dollars, or a firm with five hundred million dollars. You said the choices between fifty billion and five hundred million. Yes, I'm going to go with the fifty billion. Now, uh, nice Ex- little, uh, nice little trick there. He's showing fewer billions and more millions. But yeah, I, I can do basic math, and yes. that's either a multiple of uh, ten or a hundred or something. So, it's some number ends in zero. Isn't it strange how the bigger 
huger, more assets under management, more revenue generating firms rank higher. Yeah. What a coincidence. Wow, indeed. That's how these rankings come. So when people say, how can I tell if my advisor's any good? Well, you know, let me give you some real hard advice, you know, so, so your listeners can walk away with something. So the first thing I tell people when they're looking for a new advisor, and we're just talking about sourcing an advisor, okay, a new one. The first thing I would do is find a list, any list, you go to Merrill Lynch, go to Morgan Stanley, go to some of the um, independence. You can go to your chamber of commerce, see who belongs there. And I would right. get a list of it around, you know, two, three dozen of these guys. Okay. Girls, uh -huh. guys. And I would, first of all, the number one rule is going to be, you do not call them and you do not give them your phone number. You email them. Okay. And you, and you email them and you say, where did you go to college? I want a transcript. What is your um, what is your uh, regulatory record compliance record? Send me you know send me a copy. What is your fee schedule? And lastly, do you have a GIPS compliant performance record? Wow, well, these are uh, these are a lot of variables, my friend. Yes, and some of these guys will not give you this stuff, and that is a big red flag. And yeah. the, the guys that will not give you this stuff are the guys, I keep saying guys, you know, I mean, the advisors that won't give you this are going to be the advisors that rely on personality to bring people in the front door. Right. The people that have studied economics, studied finance, studied marketing, our markets, I mean, um, are all going to be very willing to give you that information. And I don't know about you, but I would rather have you know, somebody who was planning to do this all along than a good salesperson who decided they can make more money selling mutual funds than selling Fords. And I've seen that. Right, right. And I, and I know what you're referring to. I mean, uh, I like some of the good financial advisors I know, they've been doing it since they were 20 years old. And they've been in the industry for 40 years. Uh, I mean, so there's something there, at least theoretically or in paper, but I do see folks who uh, had some other career. Now, all of a sudden they're an investment advisor. Really? Yeah, really? Three months ago, I saw you selling, uh, I saw you selling law books at LexisNexis. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, and I, I'm going to be, you know, this is no big secret. When my, uh, when I was at Merrill Lynch in 2007, the guy that hired me into the branch office, do you know what he, he did before he became a financial advisor at Merrill Lynch? Oh, was he the assistant manager at Burger King? Close. He he was a sales. He was a uh, Toyota salesperson. Oh wow! Sold Toyotas. Because I can tell you, there's a huge correlation between selling cars and uh, and uh, and uh, being a financial advisor. And I have a really good friend who's been selling cars for 28 of his 46 years. I can tell you that there is no correlation at all. Right. But let me ask you this: If you owned a brokerage and you had to hire financial advisors, would you hire somebody, and, and this has happened, would you hire somebody that came out of MIT, University of Chicago, with a great economics PhD, but couldn't sell, you know, firewood to an Eskimo? No, I wouldn't. Or 
a guy who came out of the local community college with a degree in auto shop who could sell ice to an Eskimo. I'm going to say, I'm going to hire that ladder guy because, uh, because he's the one that's going to put money on the books from folks who uh, don't even know how to dick. And that's exactly how wall street works. Yeah. I mean, you actually need both of those talents for it to work. Um, one sells, the other makes it happen. Yes. Uh, and and that's, that's exactly what I was yeah. going to say. Yeah. If, if you will, and the reason I, I, that motivated me to read wall, the thing that motivated me to, to write Wall Street's Grand Deception is I came from the institutional side where those people existed. The genius PhD engineer, you know, the, the guy who was on one of my desks I worked with, he actually wrote algorithms. He was at the University of Oxford, wrote algorithms for spy satellites to track Soviet subs. I mean, yeah. this guy was a freaking legit genius. Yeah. There is a stunning absence of that kind of intellectual rigor on the retail side. Yeah. You just won't find it. Now, I'm not saying everybody, and I want to make real clear, a skilled advisor is an investor's best asset. You know, without question. The, you, the question you have to ask is, is the advisor you have skilled? And unfortunately, most investors don't have that ability uh, you know, to discern. And that's why I started, you know, financial advisor check because we provide, um, we're, in, we're in the midst of beta right now, but we provide institutional level performance reporting that tells you if your advisor is adding value to your portfolio returns or if their fees are just a drag on your portfolio returns. Yeah. And so we're a third party, we're objective. You know, we don't receive money from you. It's free. We don't receive money from Wall Street. Um, we do this, you know, a lot because of what happened to my brother. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, wow. I mean, it's uh, it's it's one of those things that makes you stop and think. Yeah, because let, let me ask you this. How would you feel about a college that allowed the students to grade their own papers? You know, I, I could just uh, buy a degree and, and write my own report cards or better yet, I could just start my own college for a lot less money than that. Yeah. But when, uh, when a financial advisor hands you the performance report for the year, because they have to every year, you sit down yeah. with your financial advisor. Well, they produce it. Does that make sense to you? No, it doesn't. Yeah. So let me, let me give you a real a real uh, a real life thing that happened because this was you know how sometimes they they say scientific studies um some of the best discoveries happen by accident yeah okay so there's this group and they just got bought out by somebody but back before they were bought out they were they were called phoenix marketing and there were two guys named dave thompson and benjamin gross and they wanted to do uh white paper studies uh, to sell back to the Wall Street, to sell to broker-dealers. Hey, because that's where the money is. Yeah. And so they started a database of wealthy investors, affluent investors, and they were asking them a bunch of questions. And this was in 2017, so this ain't that long ago. And they asked about the investment reports that the financial advisor produced. And 22, 27% uh, said they wanted better reports. 26% responded they wish the reporting was simpler. 
but 48% ignored all the other options and said, and checked the box that said something else. 48% said something else. Wow. So they looked at this and obviously, you know, these are smart guys. And they said, this is a much bigger number than what we thought. And so they said, we're going to send out some more surveys to figure out what, you know, what this is. Let's drill down a little bit. So they went in and they said, okay, well, how confident are you that, that you would get the same results from an unbiased independent third party as you would your financial advisor if you got performance reports from each, right? 40% of affluent investors that they surveyed said an independent source would provide a performance report that was materially different from that provided by their financial advisor. Yay. It's unbelievable. I mean, basically, you're looking at 40% of the investment world is telling Wall Street, you know, we don't really believe financial advisors' performance reporting. It's not that they're bad people. It's not that they actually do uh, bad things with their performance reporting. But they have a they have a vested interest in making sure the client thinks their performance is good, and it might not be. And so yeah. Wall Street, Wall Street saw this report. You know what they did? Didn't do a damn thing. I was about to say they were going to. I was about to say, did they bury it? They they just ignored it. And you know things go away. It's you know it made a splash for for about two months. But, you know, then the media was off to the next thing and, and you know, it just died. Uh, but we, we uh, you know, we looked at that and we're like, you, you know, there's something here. And of course, there should be something there because if you are going to be paying somebody for their advice, and there are a lot more things that financial advisors do than just investment advice, you know, they can do retirement planning, estate planning, tax counseling. Um, you might have a special needs kid. You might have come out of a divorce. You might have, you know, a large position in a single company. Um, there are a lot of services a financial advisor can provide. However, most people believe that the financial advisor is better skilled to invest their money than they are. And that is why this is important because you are granting that belief to the advisor without any substance to back it up. None. Yeah. So behind us, what we're seeing is a billion dollar marketing scheme. I mean, you, we, we mentioned $50 billion. Uh, how can one find high quality portfolio advice without falling for all these narratives? If you are, well, you, you can, you can first ask for a GIPS compliant track record. That would be my first my, yeah. my first request. Go to FINRA, look at FINRA broker check, pull your advisor's academic record. Now that seems kind of harsh, but think about it. You know, do you, there's a reason we grant doctors so much latitude when they tell us how to take care of our health because we know doctors go through a rigorous curriculum and typically they have to be the smartest kids in the class. So we kind of grant them that. 
if you're hiring a lawyer, the lawyer who is on the 28th floor of the Sears Tower, you know, who has a vast office has to pay for that somehow, if he's been, especially if he's been around a while. So, you know, he has won cases, you know, uh -huh. you are going to, you are going to ask him, you know, what cases have you won? You're, you're going to look him up in the newspapers, see you him. Know, when you go to a financial advisor, you're, you got a smile on the handshake. Uh -huh. So ask him for his academic record, ask him for his compliance record, ask him for his global investment performance standards um, uh, uh, track record. And if they can't provide all of those things, keep looking. And if you can't find somebody with a global investment performance standard track record, well, first of all, you haven't looked hard enough. They are out there, but they're hard to find. Um. And, you know, do the best you can. And I would tell people, because fees play an enormous role, I'm sure advisors have told you this, fees play an enormous role on how much your final nest egg is going to be. So if you can't find somebody that has a proven track record, say, look, I'm going to hire you. But in the beginning, I'm going to hire you for by the hour. I'm going to pay you 200 bucks an hour. I'm going to pay you a flat fee for your uh, for your uh, estate planning, you know, for your retirement plan, for your tax advice. Yeah. Um, and we're not going to do any of this asset under management stuff because you don't have a track record like a mutual fund does. I'm willing to pay the mutual fund manager a percent of assets because they have to produce. You don't. You know, I'm hiring you now based on on your personality and the fact that you have good grades at Brown or Harvard and that you have a clean compliance record and that, you know, my brother-in-law, Phil, said you were a decent guy. But I'm not paying you, you know, a fee of, of a percentage of uh, my assets under management because I know darn good and well the amount of time you spend investing a million dollars is not four times the amount of time you spend investing $250,000. So, yeah, you know, we're, I'll pay you 200, 250 bucks an hour for the first year. And then we are going to get an independent person to look at my portfolio's performance. Then we're going to decide how to go from there. And if they won't take that deal, move on. Yeah, that's <laughs> I, I'd like I'd like to see somebody go for it. But I imagine there's somebody out there who's going to be confident enough to take up on that so why you know you know along the same lines uh you know you mentioned earlier that uh, you should never blindly trust the portfolio performance generated by your advisor so what else should we be looking for if we haven't covered it already uh compliance is the main thing and okay. I, i'll give you the good that I'll, I'll give you um a story that kind of illustrates my point because i'm very wary of compliance infractions and i'm very wary of an absence of compliance infractions first let me tell you about how to be wary of a compliance infraction some guy you're meeting's been in the industry five years and this is a true story and you like him you're about ready to sign with him then you go to fenra's broker check and you go oh my gosh he has a red flag on his thing when he was working at merrill lynch he uh he he made some trades without the uh, assent of his client, and he had to pay his client back any losses that were in the account from that trade he shouldn't have done. 
and you're like, oh my gosh. Well, guess what? That client had been given to him by another broker, by another advisor who knew this client was a problem. And when we'll call, we'll call the advisor Joe. When Joe brought the client on board, he didn't know this guy was a problem. And he recommended some changes to the portfolio and the client agreed. The portfolio started to lose money. The client came and said, Joe never told me to do this. I never gave Joe permission for this. And he sued Merrill Lynch. Uh-huh. Well, the advisor, Joe, says, we went over this. I spent an hour with him in my office. And Merrill Lynch looks at him and goes, that might be the case, but our name is going to be in the local newspaper. So you're going to take the hit. You're going to pay the fine. Or you can find a new job. So Joe had to pay the fine to keep his job. Yeah. That's a true story. Okay. Didn't happen to me. Happened to somebody I know. But let me tell you a flip side of an absence of compliance uh, infractions. You go to a registered investment advisor and they hand you a form ADV. That's kind of their prospectus, tells you all about them. It's very detailed. And you look and you say, do you have any compliance infractions? And they say, well, that's our form ADV and all compliance infractions, you know, any compliance infractions would be on that form ADV. Well, guess what? Guess who gets to decide whether a lawsuit is material to place on the form ADV? The financial advisor. Wow. If you, if you go to, or I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Jason Schweig's column in the Wall Street Journal. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. But you're going to tell us about it now. Yeah. Uh, he, he has a column about that. And Jason Zweig had been, has been around for over 20 years. He, you, he's an icon in, in the investment world of, of journalism. And he admits in the column, he didn't know that was possible. He didn't know it was possible for a registered investment advisor to get sued for millions of dollars and not have to put it on their form ADV that they have to hand to the client that the client it relies on to make a judgment on their compliance record. And the registered investment advisor is allowed discretion on what they put on that ADV. But okay, the public this is, doesn't know that. This is mind-blowing because I know um, having had financial advisors as clients for some of my marketing ventures that it got to the, it got to the point where these people couldn't even log into their social media without having um, – Thanks in response to happy birthday reviewed by their compliance department before they typed it. Right. Right. Yeah. So, and so, most so, you're, so, you're, so, yeah, so you're saying that, uh, you know, you have these, uh, you have these compliance departments, uh, you know, some of which, I mean, just some of their thought process about how they would try and interfere with everything that their advisors said publicly. And yeah. And I am referring to an actual case where the advisor got questions like, why are you thanking people who wish you a happy birthday on Facebook? <laughs> that I, 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 I'm serious. That, that came up one. I came up one. So you have that level of thinking, and then you can imagine how okay. they stick their nose in on subject okay. lines on emails, social media posts, sharing articles, things like that. 
And uh, and I mean, so, it's, it's got to Adam, the point. Do, it's do, got to the point where I had to stop working with this one financial advisor, the one that I really loved working with. I loved him as a human being. I I mean, he had some great ideas. He even created this whole mastermind for financial advisors. And I just watched this compliance department just systematically destroyed his permission to do anything with it. Yeah. So this is my experience with compliance, and now I'm finding out that. Uh, on this, you know, the same supposed compliance that's up their ass about everything isn't uh, requiring them to report they got sued for millions of dollars. It is the difference in financial advisor quality that the public doesn't have access to. Right, right. You so, have right. you have Bernie Madoffs of the world. And you have, you know, the the guy on the corner who is as ethical as, you know, the pure white driven snow. Uh You know, industries have both. But you would think that the regulatory agency would mandate, mandate any lawsuits, especially successful lawsuits, to be disclosed by law to any potential client, and they don't. Let me give you another example of how ridiculous this is for my own thing. We had a, a great interview on this show like three years ago, and the guy was uh, registered with FINRA and, the, and SIPC and all that. And uh, I remember after we recorded the interview, he then dropped the bomb on me that his compliance department would need to review the episode before it went live. So what I told him is, okay, here's a recording, but bear in mind, we don't edit our episodes. This is either a go or a no-go, period. So mm-hmm. if they're so if your compliance has the part a problem with it, then you just wasted an hour. I said it's slightly nicer than that, but that was a message I was sending because I don't play their stupid games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and I'm going to develop that statement in just a second. So I heard back from him a couple of days later. They said it was fine. And then three months later, I got a letter from him that I don't think was written by him because it didn't sound like his voice because he you know he came across to me as a really nice guy, basically threatening me because his compliance department now decided that he was no longer allowed to be uh, interviewed on podcasts. And they gave me this whole list of responsibilities that I all of a sudden had to put time in to locating places where this episode might've been shared and, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and submitting requests that it be removed and following up on those requests. So I, uh, I, I, I wrote back to the guy, I said, I don't know who these people are. I took I took your episode off my website. Uh, the rest of it, uh, your compliance department can do if it's that much of a big deal with them. You told me this is okay. So when I hear now from you that these same compliance assholes won't even require their advisors to report that they were sued successfully, but they'll go to that level of pettiness, the lack of respect I already had just got amplified. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know, like I said, there, there's a whole you know rainbow of of compliance. Uh, how do I put this? Enforcement. Yeah, and and some you know it's kind of like Enron. You know, with Enron, their compliance department, what you know, and and their and their accounting was fully on board with frauding the public. I've seen I've seen that movie uh, that uh, that starred Shannon Elizabeth as the guy's wife and Mike Farrell played the uh, Enron executive. Mm-hmm. And I saw, and I saw the, and the, the room with the glass windows on it where the auditors were playing video games. And I've also seen some of the documentaries about uh, Jeff Skinner and all that, uh, that actually told a remarkably similar 
tail. It's like they bought. It's like they bought their own compliance department and got them on board. Right. Right. And and then, and 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 and, 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 and if I remember correctly, that was Arthur Anderson, and they ended up ceasing to exist as a result of that. Yes. Uh, in, in a strange, strange quirk of the tale, it's not even a footnote in the book, and I'm, I, I can't say which one it is. But my father-in-law uh, bought at a distressed sale. One of the people, one of the people that is uh, represented in that movie, um, he bought his uh, ski chalet in Aspen at a distress yeah. sale. Yeah, yeah, and I, and uh, and if I remember correctly, uh, Ken Lay's wife ended up opening some kind of consignment store where the initial inventory was the stuff that they had to sell to try and settle some of their legal bills. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure. And I'm in Houston. I live in Houston. So I, I've yeah. run into a lot of people uh, who had experience, you know, from Enron. And one of the, the one of my earlier uh, things was I, I was at a party downtown and I was talking to a guy and Enron came up and this is like 2005. Uh, and and we were talking about it. And, and uh, he goes, yeah, I knew they were full of shit. He goes, I knew they were fraudulent. I said, well, how do you know? And uh, he said, well, I had done a deal with them and I knew by the size of the deal that it was material to their annual uh, to their annual reporting requirements. So one of the things I did when their annual report came out was I got a hold of one because I wanted to gloat because I was making a fortune off this deal with them. And I knew they, they were going to stick it in the footnotes and try to sneak it through. And he goes, but I also knew that wow. legally they had to report it. and. Uh, and so he goes, so I grabbed the annual review and I couldn't find it. And then I called in, you know, my finance guy and he couldn't find it. Then we sent it outside to our outside legal counsel and they came back and they said, it's not in there. And he said, all of a sudden I realized Enron was hiding the numbers, was cooking the books. And he goes, I almost shorted their stock, um, but I wasn't so certain as to do it. But, but, but he said at that point, he started talking to his buddies in the energy industry at Houston, and nobody would come out and say they're a fraud, but nobody would come out and say they weren't either. Yeah, well, that to me tells me that there was intimidation based on financial position right there, where they had the ability to exact revenge on anybody who would come out and say something like Enron is a fraud, basically make Houston an unlivable town for them. Yeah. I mean, when you have the vice president of the United States touring your, you know, your office space, you got some serious political power and yeah. political power is real. Right. Right, right, right. And so, and so for the average person in, in America who just wants to put their money to work for them, that's a lot to be up against. It is. And if you want to hear something, and I can't remember which book this is in, it might be in uh, The Great uh, Mutual Fund Trap. I have a bunch of books here because um, uh, actually financial uh, fraud is one of my hobbies. I study it all the time and I'll tell you why after I tell you this. But do you know that at the day after Enron declared bankruptcy, at least five or six Wall Street brokers still had it rated as a buy? That does not surprise me one bit, yeah. but go ahead. 
Yeah. But uh, I, I do that. You know, I like I like uh, I'm a student of financial markets. You know, I, I got a financial markets uh, degree, got a master's degree. I love uh, reading about the history of financial markets, not just in the United States, but all over the world. And uh, so I got a real treat when my I had my first job in London. You know, this is back in the 90s. And I'm going to tell you the guy's name and you're not going to recognize it, but uh, we hired a guy uh, as an assistant manager in the back, the back offices of a derivatives group that I was managing in, uh, in London with ABN AMRO. Now, I wasn't managing the group. I was just a manager in the department. And uh, his name was Tony Railton, a name that you will not recognize until right, I tell I don't. you this. Do you remember when Barings Bank went bust in Singapore and a guy named Nick Leeson lost 800 million pounds on uh, derivative trading? Oh, that was in every gossip magazine. You, uh, you would have to have been under a rock to not know that one. Right. At the time, it was the biggest fraud in the world. Well, Tony Railton, the assistant manager, was the guy who was the clerk who uncovered all that. And okay. so when I found out that I'm like, you're that Tony, he's like, yeah. And the movies were coming out at that time. He was really nervous about how he would be portrayed um, because he knew what had gone down and uh, he knew intimately what had gone down. And uh, but it was to Nick Leeson's benefit to make him kind of kind of uh, look stupid, which I don't think was ever done. But Tony would take me out and tell me exactly what happened. And imagine you're a clerk that has been sent from London to Singapore because one of the clerks in Singapore had gotten pregnant. And so he was just supposed to be there for a couple of weeks. Then he starts trying to balance the positions in the books and they ain't balancing. And he's calling London and London's going, nah, don't worry about it. Nick's got everything under control. And he'd go back and he'd ask Nick stuff. And then Nick would like act as if he was uh, active as if he was, uh, you know, bothering him and to shut up kid. And then eventually the whole thing fell, you know, uh, fell in on itself. And the next thing Tony knows is he is on the phone with the financial consultant of the Sultan of Brunei, the uh, the head of the uh, exchequer in, in London and the head of yep. Barings Bank. And he, wow, that, that would be a fun phone call, let me tell you. Yeah, I mean, he, he is talking to people that are about umpteen thousand levels above his position, and yeah. they are relying on a billion-dollar line of credit based on his answers on a conference call. It's a wow. lot of pressure. And the deal almost went through until Tony until they told Tony that he had to give them a definitive dollar amount as to the losses. And he said, well, today the losses are X. And then the, the, the guy jumps in from the Bank of England and goes, okay, they're X. And, and the deal is starting to go down. It's starting to go through. And Tony goes, wait, wait, wait. That's, that's the losses today. Tomorrow can be more. And they're like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, the market's opening tomorrow. When they know the bearings is on the wrong side of these trades, they're going to push the market against us as far as they can, knowing that we have to exit the trade. And they're like, so what's it going to be? And he's like, we don't know. And as soon as he said that they couldn't put a limit on the losses, the Sultan of Brunei was like, we're out. Wait a minute. He actually had the Sultan of Brunei on the phone. Uh, had his financial guy on the phone. Okay. I just want to, I just want yeah. to be clear. I just want to be clear on that because that's <laughs> a, because you're dealing with one of the richest 
and most ruthless, ruthless individuals who currently walks the face of the earth. Yeah. You know, yeah. this was his financial guy and we, they were talking about a billion dollar, you know, line of credit. Um, and actually I, I, I'm not sure if it was a line of credit or the Sultan was going to take over the bank and, but it was still going to be British or something, but essentially, you know, the, the, uh, the chancellor of the exchequer was trying to save bearings through a cash injection from the Sultan of Brunei. And, uh, it didn't happen. Wowzers. Yeah. I love all that kind of stuff. That stuff's yeah. there, there. There's so many people. Do you know what really drives me crazy, Adam? And I know you've seen this. What right, drives me, me crazy are all these social media influencers who go off and spout statistics about index investing. And yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. And they are supposed to be the world's uh, personal finance guru, just listen to me. These are the numbers they, you know, da da da, time and time again. And it's obvious they've never actually studied the markets. Do you know what the SP was trading at about 1971, 1972? Okay, so for 10 years, the market basically went nowhere. Right. That can happen. Okay, do you know, okay, let's take Japan. And this is my favorite example. In Japan, in the early 1992, the Japanese Nikkei hit a high of 40,000, and then it sold off. And do you know how long it took since 1982 to get back to the 40,000 in the Nikkei? This is where you're the expert, my friend. Yeah, it still hasn't gotten back there. Yeah. So the idea that, you know, just, in, just invest in the indexes, just invest in the indexes really flies in the face of history, unless you're just looking at history from 1983 forward, which is a really, and only if you're looking at the American markets. And that's why these social media influencers drive me bonkers. And that's why a skilled financial advisor will be able to keep something like those circumstances, those market conditions in the back of their mind when they make a financial plan for you. Because what happens if you turn 55 just in the next 10 years, that's going to be the most disposable income you have to invest in the markets. And yet the market might go flat for 10 years. And we know that because it's done it time and time and time again. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the index guy is going to go, just put it in the index, 7% a year on average. It'll always come back. It's always come back. The skilled financial advisor is going to go, you know, you're getting older now. We might want something that pays a lot of dividends so that even if the market goes nowhere, you're still making 2 3% a year at least, plus a little bit maybe, you know, on the capital appreciation of your stock. Yeah, that's the difference between the skilled financial advisor and somebody who wants to get a lot of followers. Yeah. That's pretty scary. And I think that's actually, since we are actually about out of time, that's a good place for me to extend your introduction to, or your, your invitation to our, to our listeners. So I encourage people to visit your websites. Uh, they, there are two of them, actually, one of which is financialadvisorcheck.com. And there you have the opportunity to become a beta tester for the mobile app that Norman has shared with us. He mentioned it earlier. So you 
can be part of history. You can be part of changing everything that we have discussed here today. And for this book, Wall Street's Grand Deception, I strongly encourage you to pick up that book. And you can find it at www.wallstreetsgranddeception.com. Uh, or Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Right, right, right. It's on It's on major retailers, but um, I like to point people to your website because they can also see opportunities to connect with you. They can discover more about the book that may necessarily be available on a, on a third-party site. So I want to make sure that people are visiting you at wallstreetsgranddeception.com. And with that, Norman Papoose, thank you so much for being with us today. It has been an honor and, uh, believe me, an education. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. It's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.